<clears throat> I'm so excited that we're, you know, we're knocking on the door of the end of the book of Romans because it is really a gratifying thing, isn't it? When you come to the end of something and you are completing a job. You know, whether it's writing a song, when you come to the end, you say, wow, here it is. Whether you're writing a screenplay or a book or making a film or whatever it might be, and you come to the end, you say, here it is, and now you're ready to present it. Well, I feel a little bit like that, that I come to the end, and I'm actually completing this, because there are many things I start that I never complete. You know, never complete. But here we are coming to the end of the book of Romans. By the end of July, we will have completed it. And when we finish up here, I want to share a little bit from the different liturgical elements in our service. So we're going to go right down, talk about the candles, talk about the kimitzion, talk about the various uh, liturgical prayers that we pray, what they are about, where they come from in God's word and what they signify and why we do them here. And then starting in the fall, after the high holy days or somewhere in there, uh, I want to share through and, and teach through the book of Daniel. So this is going to be uh, exciting things that are for me as I study God's word and have opportunity to share those kinds of things with you. But in chapter 15, beginning at verse 23, Paul, as he brings the letter, starts bringing it to a close. Of course, he's done this a few times already. If you look at chapter 15, verse 13, he started there. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you'd expect him to say, Amen, and that's the end of the letter. But no, he had some other things he wanted to share. And as he writes a little bit more, uh, he comes down to verse 33. And he says, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, you think that's the end. And then you go down to chapter 16 in verse 20. He says, and the God of peace will soon crush the evil one under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua be with you. And you figure that's the end. But no, he, some other things come to mind. And then he finally comes to the end, verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forever through Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. So even Paul is having a hard time completing this, this work as more and more ideas come into his mind and heart about what he wants to share with the believers in Rome. But beginning at verse 23, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task, have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and will visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Messiah. So I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. 
What a rich section. It's like anywhere you turn in the book of Romans, it's a rich, fulfilling section. Just take a look at the back end of this. He concludes by asking for prayer. And we might say, Paul, the apostle, the one called to the Gentiles, why would he need prayer? And yet he acknowledges the need for prayer. But then on the other hand, he lets them know that he's praying for them as well. As the last line says, may the God of peace be with you all. Even as I ask you to pray for me, I am praying for you as well. Much like Justin has shared. He is, their congregation, their church is praying for our body here. Praying for me and Mary Lou. Praying for each and every one of us. And so Paul is writing and he's telling them, listen, pray for me and I'll be praying for you. Now, before we take a look at this prayer, let me see if I can go through some of these things here. Take a look at the early passage that we read, verse 23, 24. Notice Paul's desire is to get to Spain. He wants to come to Rome, but only to pass through. His real desire is to get to Spain. And the reason for that, as he's told us earlier, is because his calling is to go where no one has gone before. He prides himself in the fact that he is not going to build upon any other man's foundation. The Lord has called him to plant from the very scratch, lay the foundation for congregations where believers are gathered together and the believers in Rome are already there. So he only wants to pass through. He wants to come to Rome because he needs their support. He needs their prayers. He needs their finances. And he also needs help along the way. He needs companionship. And that's how Paul's ministry had always been conducted. When he went on his first journey to establish churches in Cyprus, congregations of believers in Asia Minor, he left from Antioch of Syria. And from that congregation, money was given to Paul to support him. From that congregation, individuals came with him. Barnabas, John Mark, later Timothy and Titus and Silas. They all come out of that same congregation. And after he plants these congregations, he moves further east or west. And he heads to Europe. And he's now looking for support from those congregations as he seeks to go further west, east, west, towards Spain. And he wants Rome to help them along the way because the support from Antioch is going to be too far removed from where he will be geographically. And so he's looking for their involvement in what he is doing in order to bring the message of the good news to the Gentile world in Spain and in the rest of Europe. Now, notice what he says. He says to them, I'll enjoy your company. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem. In the service of the saints there from Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor. When Paul first came to faith and he gathered with the early believers, James, Peter, and John. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. When he gathered with them and made it known to them his calling to bring the good news to the Gentile world. They affirmed his calling and his ministry. And that he says that they extended to him the right hand of fellowship. But notice what, he, what also he says, verse 9. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked 
was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They said that they would support Paul in his ministry, but the one thing he wanted them to remember was that there is financial need in Jerusalem. The believers in Jerusalem are under tremendous financial stress, and we want you to remember their material needs. Here in Romans, Paul even says, if they, those early believers from which the gospel came forward from the Jewish people, if they ministered to your spiritual needs, if these Jewish believers were instrumental in seeing that the good news of Messiah, the message of of salvation came to the Gentile peoples, they have a moral responsibility to meet the physical needs of these Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are under tremendous amount of stress because of the, the poverty that they are enduring. Why were they in such poverty? Remember, the Jewish nation, the people of Israel were under the control of Rome. And Rome was a wealthy city. The believers in Rome are wealthy individuals. The believers in Corinth are wealthy individuals. These were Roman colonies. And if you were a Roman colony, everyone in that colony was an automatic citizen of Rome. And all the funds that came into Rome from the outlying provinces went to, to support and funnel the Roman citizens. So they grew wealthy off of the taxation that was oppressive to the outlying provinces. And the most outlying province to the Romans was Israel. And so the Jews of Rome were highly taxed. Didn't matter how poor they were. Their resources, their funds were flowing into Rome. And Rome was beginning to get very wealthy and well-established. And so now as Paul goes forward, he's going to be going among Gentiles who are benefiting from the Jews from whom who have been highly taxed and inappropriately so. And so Paul is being instructed to let these believers know That the Jewish people in Israel and the Jewish believers particularly because not only were they suffering because of Rome, but they were suffering at the hands of their own countrymen who rejected them because of their faith in the Messiah of Israel. So now they're further ostracized and having even greater difficulty making a living. And so the reason why Paul goes on his journeys, we oftentimes hear to plant congregations to spread the good news and to bring the message of salvation. That is all true. But it is equally true that he went in order to raise money for these believers who were struggling in Rome. Now what he tells the Romans is, the believers in Rome, I'm coming to you, but I have some other business first. Paul is writing from Corinth. He's a hop, skip, and a jump from Rome. Corinth is in the lower section of what is today Greece. And in the first century, that region was divided into two areas, Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the south. The congregations Paul had planted in the north were congregations at Philippi, at Thessalonica, at Berea. The congregation he planted in the southern part of Achaia was Corinth. The the believers gathered in the northern part were poor. The believers gathered in the south in Corinth were very wealthy. 
And now he tells the Romans that he has some money. He has support to bring to the believers at Rome. And he cannot entrust that high responsibility to anyone other than himself. For he was instructed to make sure that he would raise money for the poor. And he wanted to make sure that money got to them. So he has to go to Jerusalem first and then come back out to Rome. You would think in the first century, it's not like you just hop on a plane and you go. It takes months and months and months. And that's if the weather is good, if the roads are safe, and if the seas are, in, uh, are not churning up and in the midst of a storm. You would think Paul would say, listen, I'll give this to Titus, or I'll give this to Luke, or I'll give it to one of my trusted associates and continue to move east, west, <laughs> west. But Paul says, no, I need to bring these resources to the believers at Rome, giving is a wonderful thing. Paul tells us it is the mark of what it means to be a believer. One's generosity. Because our generosity to others reflects our receiving of generosity from God. If you really believe that God has been gracious to you, how can we but be gracious to others, is how Paul thinks about it. And when he writes, and this is interesting because look at chapter 15. He says that the Macedonians and Achaeans were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And I had to ask myself, is that really true? Were they really pleased to do that? Take a look at 2 Corinthians. Paul writes to these believers in Corinth from which he is writing this letter to the Romans. From which he will sail to Jerusalem. And take a look at his section in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Those two chapters are about giving and how contributions ought to be made. I find this to be very telling. Look at verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian congregations. Now think about the three things that motivated these congregations to give to the poor in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. First of all, they gave out of the most severe trial. So these were individuals that were going through, we don't know what the trial is. But he doesn't just say they were going through struggles. He says it was severe. I generally think people who give are people who have it okay. People who aren't going through many trials, particularly financial trials. People who have the resources at their beck and call and can help if only they knew where the need was. But Paul says, no, no, no. These congregations in Macedonia, they did not give out of their wealth. He says they gave because of their severity of trial. And one thing I have learned is that people give because they know what it means to hurt. And it's not until we hurt that we really come to that place where we're willing to help someone else. It's when we experience what it means to be under such enormous pressure and strain and severity of challenge that when someone comes to us and says, I am really struggling, can you help? We know what it means to hurt. If we don't, we oftentimes take the approach like, well, maybe you ought to have been wiser and had a better education. Maybe you ought to be working more uh, seriously on a given degree so you can get a better job. Maybe you ought to be sending out many more applications. Maybe you should be knocking on more doors. And we somehow think that, and sometimes it may be, but sometimes we think that it is the people's fault because they don't have enough financial resources. Paul is telling us that these believers gave because they know what what, what it is to hurt. 
And when we look at our history and we remember those moments where we were under severe trial and someone or someone's come and say, we need your help. Perhaps we might step back and say, you know, I need to give because I know what it's like. That's what he says motivated them. Look at the second thing he says. He says they were overflowing with joy that they just were so happy to give. He doesn't tell us what caused all of this happiness. But I'm sure a great deal of it had to do with they knew God very well. And they knew what it was to have been lost and now found. They knew what it was to be denied grace and finally have it exhibited toward them, for them, and in their lives. They had probably often been denied mercy, and now God was merciful. And when you really come to grips with those ideas, and you really sense them, and feel them, and realize their reality, you have a sense of great joy, as well as hope. And so if there's someone in need, I can give, because God will take care of me as well. And then look at the third thing he says. They also gave out of their extreme poverty, which welled up to rich generosity. He doesn't say just poverty, but extreme poverty. I will tell you, and this is true, and I bet you it is true for most, that when I was as a missionary and I was raising support, it was not the big churches that were most generous. It was the smaller churches that gave so overabundantly. I can remember being in services where it was a small church and they counted the money and said, this is not enough. We're passing the plate again. Until we have enough money in here, we're not leaving. But I can tell you many big churches of thousands that would say, sure, you can come, but we're going to give you an honorarium for $300. Nothing to, you know, that's acceptable. But when you consider the distinctions, Paul says even here. Now, why is he saying that? Because the believers in Macedonia were poor. And Paul had no problem in getting a generous gift from them. But he did have a problem in getting a generous gift from the Corinthians who were wealthy. But Paul is a wonderful man. And he wouldn't write to the Romans and say, those believers in the north were very pleased to give. But those Corinthians, you know, I had to really deal with them. But he did. But what does he say to the Romans? Both those in the north and the Corinthians, they were pleased to give. But were they? Well, listen to what Paul writes. Take a look here. He says, why is he even telling the Corinthians about the giving in the north? Because the Corinthians hadn't been giving. He's trying to tell them, you got to get on the ball. Because those in the north that have far less than you have, have already given and have given abundantly and generously. And you guys who are well off, Haven't even given a penny yet. Look what he says. It's very fascinating. He said, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves. And this is really the reason why people give. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Love the Lord. Love others as yourself. But look what he says. So we urged Titus since he had made earlier made a beginning To bring also to completion the act of grace on your part. See what he's saying? You guys promised to give, but you haven't completed the act. You need to now do what you said you would do. And look what Paul also says. It's not enough for me to tell you. I'm sending Titus to encourage you to give. Paul is not going to take no for an answer. He said you guys said you would give. You haven't given yet. I'm I'm sending Titus. He says it very nicely. 
But if you read through the lives, you get a sense of what's happening. Look what he goes on to say. But just as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You're not excelling there. And you need to be because there are people who are in need of your generosity. Look what he says in verse 8. I'm not commanding you. Yeah, that's very nice. But he is, right? I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love. Well, if you really love these people, you'd be giving. I shouldn't have to be telling you this. So I'm now testing the sincerity of your love. By comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord the Messiah. Though he's rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Look what he says in verse 10. Here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. He says, our desire, verse 13, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that they might be equally helped. And he goes on to tell us over and over again. If you look at verse 22, in addition, we're sending with them our brother who also has proved to us in many ways that he's zealous. And now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner, fellow worker. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love. And the reason for your, our pride in you, so that these believers can see it. There's no need, he says in chapter 9, for me to write you about this service, for I know your eagerness to help. See, he keeps telling them, you need to give. But to the Romans, he said they were willing to give. <laughs> but here, he has to sort of help them in their giving. And that's true for us as well. We need to be giving. And we need to be giving generously. We need to be giving joyfully. And we will do so when we commit ourselves to the Lord first and then to those that are in need. Now turn back to Romans chapter 15. I just find that to be so, such a fascinating thing about uh, his giving. But then he says in verse 30, not only about giving but prayer. He says, I urge you brothers by our Lord. Oh, excuse me, verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness, the full measure of the blessing of Messiah. I just want to say something about this idea of receiving the full measure of the blessing of Messiah. Paul says that when he comes, that's what he wants to come with or to come in. In one sense, there is a truth in which we have all the, all the fullness of the blessings in heaven are ours. Paul says that in Ephesians, we are seated in heavenly places. And in that sense, we are already co-heirs with God and with Messiah himself. We already have the fullness of riches in heaven. But I don't think that's what Paul is referring to. When he says, I want to come in the full measure of the blessings of Messiah, he means to say, I want to bestow upon you the blessings of God himself. He wants to bring the goodness of God to bear on their lives. Now, an interesting passage that sort of dovetails with this is Yeshua's own words in John chapter 15. You could turn there if you like, just to look at these things. But in chapter 15, I think it's like verses 1 through 17, Paul is teaching at the Passover. And he's sharing with him, with the disciples, 
their need to walk in his ways. And he tells them why. He says four things in these verses. The first thing he tells them is, God's desire is that they would bear fruit. His statement seems to indicate that if we truly know the Lord, we will be fruit bearers. I don't think he merely means that we would become a people of good character as exhibited by the fruit of the Spirit. I think what he's telling us is he desires and expects that believers are going to manifest God's goodness through their ministry, through their service, and through their lives to others. And thus we are to bear fruit in our life, in our labors, in our service, in our ministries. But in John chapter 15, he not only says that you would bear fruit, he then says that you would bear more fruit. He also says in that section, not that you would bear fruit and more fruit, but that he says that you would bear much fruit. He doesn't just say bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit, but then he concludes the section by saying that you would bear fruit that will last. And I started thinking about fruit because around the corner from us, you know, people sell strawberries and cherries and, but you know, if you wait one day, doesn't last. You know, you eat it right then and there. It's the sweetest thing in the world. But you wait too long, it gets rotten and it decays and it dies. Start thinking about my own ministry. You know, in many ways, it will be long forgotten. You know, when I think of some of the great believers of the past, I can, you know, I can just rattle off a handful of people. But there have been millions and millions of individuals like myself and yourself that have served the Lord that we don't know at all. Fruit that will last. It's amazing that the writings say, whatever we think of the man, St. Augustine from 400 is still read today nearly 2,000 years later. That's fruit that lasts. But when we think of, you know, our own lives... Will we really produce fruit that will last, that others might benefit from? Certainly in the eyes of God, it's fruit that will last. He'll remember even the things we've forgotten. But in the final analysis, we all ultimately decay and die. And there have been many works that have done the same. Think of the congregations Paul had planted on all his journeys that we speak so highly of. In Asia, none of them exist. They're gone. It did not last. So why, why is it our ministries, our works, our investments do not necessarily last? Paul, uh, Yeshua tells us how they can last. John chapter 15 says four things. He says, first of all, remain in me. Abide in me. If we're going to have fruit that will last, it means we need to be followers, followers and following him. It doesn't mean we have to go through some kind of program in order to do this, but we need to be ones who are so desirous of being connected to him that we abide in him. For he is the vine, we are the branches. And we must abide in him if we will bear fruit. He not only talks about abiding, he also tells us we have to be aware of a singular truth. He says in the very same section, without me, you can do nothing. That's a hard thing for any of us to accept because none of us really believes that. 
We all believe that if we really study hard enough, if we really work hard enough, if we really are stick to enough, we'll be able to accomplish this, that, or anything we might dream. But Yeshua is very clear. Without me, you can do nothing. So if we're going to have fruit that lasts, if we're going to have more fruit, much fruit, fruit at all, and fruit that will last, we need to be connected with Him always. We need to be reminded that it is Him working through us, and we are but unprofitable servants. And when we stand before him, we will cast our crowns before him and our rewards and say, it is all because of what you have done in and through me. It is you at work. Then then they will last. He not only tells us to remain in him. He not only tells us to remember we can do nothing without him, but he also says, my word must remain in you. We have to be devoted to his word and his truth. And not be sidetracked by the things that we would prefer to embrace. It must be in his word that we trust. My words must remain in you. And thus whatever it is we believe must be guided by his word. And we must be ready and desirous and eager to throw out whatever it is, reject whatever it is, is not consistent with his truth. No matter how good and beneficial and enjoyable it may have been or is. His word must remain in us and not our ideas about his word. And the fourth thing he tells us is, and it's the very last phrase, love one another. If we're going to have fruit that will last, it must be in the context of love for one another. And we say this all the time because it's the center of it all. Love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. Because they put the Lord first and they put our needs that they gave, Paul says in Corinthians. And here Yeshua says, love one another. This is how they will know you are my disciples, by your love one for another. So that is preeminent. And so if the God who is all love is going to be reigning in our midst and producing the fruit and showing up and making his presence known, he's going to come where there are those who are devoted to one another and will love one another. And so Paul says, I want to come in the full measure of the blessing. He wants to bestow upon them, be a vehicle by which God's full measure of blessing is bestowed upon these believers at Rome. And the way we can do that, in other words, I want there to be fruit among you. More fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last. And thus that means that Messiah must be central in everything that we are about. For without him, we can do nothing. Without his word, we've got no guidance, direction, or knowledge about what it is we ought to be doing. Without remaining in him, without following him, and without manifesting his love one to another. And thus, that's what Paul says. Now, let me just say one last thing. He then talks about prayer. And he says in the end, I pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable. I find these two things very interesting as well. His service to be acceptable. He's bringing them money. Why wouldn't it be acceptable? Why would his service to the believers in Jerusalem not be thought, be thought of as not possibly being acceptable? Pray it'll be accepted. I mean, if someone said, here's, I'm bringing you money, you don't need to pray about it. Thank you, you know. But he says, pray that they'll accept it. Why wouldn't they accept it? You know why, right? Because it's coming from Gentile hands. It's coming from these 
congregations of predominantly Gentiles. And there's this conflict between the Jews, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, right? They wanted the Gentile believers circumcised earlier. He gave them the right hand of fellowship. They're affirming him as the apostle to the Gentiles. It wasn't natural. It was thought of as the Gentiles, they need to convert to being Jewish before they can embrace the Jewish Messiah. Paul is no dummy. He realizes this. And when he comes to Jerusalem, it's interesting. You can see it in Acts chapter 21. They express their gratitude for the gift. It says that they warmly received the gift, which showed that they loved these Gentiles that were outside of Jerusalem. But then he says, and pray that I am rescued from the Jewish unbelievers. And here's what's so amazing. That's what he prayed, right? He said, pray with me. They'll accept the offering and pray that I'll be rescued from those in Israel that oppose me. But no one thought how it would be that that would occur. Because Paul now sets sail. He goes to Jerusalem. He brings the money, sort of hoping they'll accept it because it's coming predominantly from Gentiles, and they do accept it warmly. So something of that rift, that conflict between Jew and Gentile is beginning to uh, work its way out. But then what happens? They say to Paul, you know, there are many Jewish believers here who believe you're telling the Gentiles or telling Jews they shouldn't obey Moses. And Paul says, I've not been telling them that. And they said, well, take a vow, make a vow and go into the temple, offer the sacrifice, showing that you are not telling Jewish believers that they shouldn't obey the law, that they should not, that they should somehow think of the Mosaic law as inconsequential. He says, fine. So he does just that. And he goes into the temple. And what happens? A riot breaks out. Why does a riot break out? Because they believe Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. Remember at Ephesus, word is circulated that a Gentile, uh, Trophimus, had stood by Paul and rescued him in the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Now they believe that he brought him with himself into the very temple. Now it's so hard for us to understand because we don't have that kind of separation as such today. But if you were in Israel in the first century and you went up to the temple mount, starting from the temple, you had the temple structure, the Holy of Holies and the holy place. No one's going in the Holy of Holies because of our alienation from God, except the high priest once a year, having gone through the prescribed ritual, which we reflect upon on the Day of Atonement. But when you come out into the court of the Israelites, where the sacrifices were offered, there was then a stairway of 15 steps down that you walked into the court of the women. And that's where the women could congregate. But they couldn't come into the court of the men, the court of the Israelites. But 15 steps separated the women from the men. And then if you wanted to go out the temple, you went out the beautiful gate facing east. And there were five steps out of that gate that led down to the platform that was leveled around the temple area. You walked 20 feet away from the temple wall and there was a five foot wall that surrounded the whole temple area. And you would walk down 14 steps from that wall and you were now in the court of the Gentiles. 
And that wall that surrounded the temple that was five feet high and 14 feet down had posted signs all around it. Three of them have been uncovered by archaeologists that says, no Gentile passed this wall on the pain of death. So the idea that Paul would have brought a Gentile past that wall, up those steps, up the beautiful gate, into the court of the women, up those steps, into the court of the Israelites, the Jewish men, they went berserk. And if it was not for the Roman soldiers, he would have been killed. So the Roman saw, and he stands up, he says, I didn't bring any Gentiles with me. But the Roman soldiers take him and they arrest him. Big mistake, because Paul is a Roman citizen. And they could not just arrest him on this kind of basis. There's no crime committed. So he makes his appeal to Caesar for his mistreatment. And the Roman garrison now escorts him to Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. Spends two years in house arrest on, in, in Caesarea. Then he's put on a boat. And he's taken to Rome to make his plea to Rome. And he meets the believers at Rome for the first time. And he's there for two years. When he's then released from prison, some believe he did make it to Spain. There are some traditions outside the Bible that suggest that. Then returned to Rome and then was arrested again and executed. My point is this. Paul said to pray the offering would be accepted, which it was. Pray that I'm protected from my enemies, which he was. And he prays that he'd make it to Rome, which he was. But I don't think he ever thought he would get to Rome under those kinds of circumstances. Prayer is like that. James says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The scripture tells us the reason why we don't have is because we don't pray. James says, why don't you have? Because you don't ask. I should put that on my wall in my office. You know, think about that. What is in your life you would like to see God bring to bear? Have you asked? I mean, really asked? As one who has been abiding in him, as one that has been abiding in his word, as one who has been loving one another, as one that has been trusting in him. And do we come before him and say, Lord, would you do this? And left it with him and said, Lord, bring this to bear your way. Your time, as if we have to say that because God is saying, it will be my way and in my time, believe me. But Paul's prayer is so unselfish. He's praying that they'll accept the money. He's praying he'll be protected so he can continue to minister. He's praying that he would get to Rome so he can serve them. He's praying that he can get to Spain so he can plant more congregations further out. He's not praying the Lord would give him a bigger home. He's not praying the Lord would give him a better job. He's not praying the Lord would show me who to marry. He's not praying would the Lord help me to know where to go to school. Write this script. It has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with others. And everything to do with the glory of God. I think sometimes we don't receive because we're not asking for the right things. When I think of the story 
of D.L. Moody. I'm going to close here. It's almost 1230. I apologize. But this is a fantastic story how D.L. Moody got, was called as an evangelist. You know, he's a shoe salesman in Boston. I used to pride myself working in Boston. I'd go by this bank, and on the bank there was this brass plaque. On this spot, in such and such a year, D.L. Moody found Jesus as his Savior. Right in the streets of Boston, you know. He was a shoe salesman there. Had a love for young people. He established the YMCA's. And in Chicago... In the late 1800s, you know, the Chicago fire broke out. And D.L. Moody, who was not a well-known man at that time, he was just working with young people, had worked very tirelessly in raising money to help the people of Chicago rebuild. And he, after he had done that, he needed a break, he needed a rest, and he decided he was going to sail to England. And he wanted just to sit under the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. And the ministry of George Mueller. To hear them teach. And to be ministered to. So he did. And when he got to London. A congregation had asked if he would share. Speak one Sunday morning. He got up to speak. And after he was finished. He went up to the pastor. He said. Please forgive me. That was such a horrible message. You know. And I just felt no strength. No power. I'm, I'm really sorry. And the pastor said, listen, I want you to come back this evening and speak again. He said, no, 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 don't do this to me because today was such a bomb. You know, I don't want to do this. And he said, no, come back tonight. Well, that night he prayed or that afternoon he prayed. He came back that evening. He said, D.L. Moody, by the way, R.A. Torrey tells the story, who succeeded Moody as the pastor of Moody Church uh, after D.L. Moody resigned. And he tells the story, and he said that Moody that night felt the power and presence, or that afternoon, come upon him, and he felt prepared. He got up in the pulpit, and he began to speak, and at the end, he felt encouraged to ask people if they'd like to ask the Lord into their lives, and he asked those who would if they would stand. 500 people stood up. Dio Moody looked at the crowd, he said, he asked them to sit down, and he said, you know, maybe I wasn't clear. <laughs> I'm asking if you really want to give your life to the Lord, I'd like you to meet me in the vestry, which is through these two doors on the side of the pulpit, and I'll be on the other side. I'll wait for you there. Well, the whole church comes in and moves into the vestry, and it's all crowded out. And he said to the crowd, I'll, you know what? Come tomorrow. If you really mean this, you'll come tomorrow night and you'll meet with the pastor. I'm going to Ireland where I was asked to speak and you'll talk to the pastor. He goes up to Ireland. That afternoon, he gets a telegram from the pastor saying the church packed, packed out today. There are more people here than they were Sunday morning and Sunday evening. You have to come back to help me with all of these people that have given their lives to the Lord. That same night, there are two women. One was an invalid, and the other was her caretaker. She brought in the paper to this invalid, and on the paper was, Deal Moody spoke at such and such a church, and all these people that stood up to give their lives to the Lord. She looked at that, and she said to the caretaker, If I had known this, I would not have eaten all day. 
I would not have allowed anyone to come into my room. I would have just stayed here and prayed and fasted because I have been praying that Moody would come here to speak at this church that a revival might break out in London. And this woman devoted herself in prayer like that and didn't even know what occurred until she read the paper. And then she was furious that she was interrupted and not told, not so that she could go, but so that she could be praying for him. There is some truth, really, we don't have because we don't ask. And when we ask, James says, we ask wrongly. We ask for the wrong things. And then we wonder why it is that our prayers are not answered. Because prayers are answered that are prayed in accordance with the will of God. Because God's will always is what occurs. And so Paul urges the believers at Rome, pray for me that I'm kept safe so I continue to serve, that the offering is received so that they can be relieved, and that I will be able to come to you to gain the support I need to go on to Spain. Now, one final word about prayer. We had a prayer ministry team here after service. If you had a need, you met with the prayer ministry team. I've put together a seminar on prayer. I want to relaunch this team because prayer is essential. Yeshua said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. We need to be a praying congregation. I was so gratified on the National Day of Prayer. There were about 15 or so of us that gathered together Thursday from 11 to 12, whatever it was, and we prayed for our country. And I thought, I want those people to come to this seminar and to be a part of our prayer ministry team because they thought it important enough to be there to pray for our nation. Certainly, they will think it important enough to pray for our congregation and the needs in our congregation. But this is open to everyone. If you want to become a person of prayer, this seminar that will probably start in two weeks, and I'll be announcing it now that I've put the materials together, We need to come together to learn how to pray. We take that for granted right away. We all think we know how to pray because all it is is talking to God. But Paul James tells us we don't know how to pray. And so I went through God's word to learn how to pray. And I'll share the things that I learned. And then we'll become a praying congregation in a way perhaps we haven't been before. And then we'll have a prayer ministry team that will be unified to pray for one another. And to give glory to to God. Well, stand with me, would you? And I want to close in prayer and then individuals. And we are ones that oftentimes, myself very much included, think we understand much when we understand very little. But we are desirous to grow in you and we need to be guided by you as well as your word. And so, Lord, you have provided us with the instructions on prayer. And you've guided us with the instructions on giving. And you've guided us and, and helped us to understand. You've given us instructions on ministry one to another. And so, Father, we need your strength, your guidance, your direction to do what your word instructs and to become a people who bear fruit, much fruit, and more fruit, and fruit that will last. 
A people who abide in you and in your word and love one another. A people who are generous to others, not merely out of our own successes or our, our, our own abilities, but out of our own extreme poverty. Because we have set the Lord first and we have loved others as ourselves. We pray that you would help us, that we would live a life that permeates and manifests your very presence. For where you are, people will be drawn unto you. For if you are lifted up, you will draw all individuals unto yourself. And so may we be like this woman, this invalid who could only pray. And as a result of her prayer, you might use an individual like D.L. Moody and this pastor and many others perhaps in that church to see that a revival would break out in that city at that time. Lord, set us a right to prayer. And may you set on fire by your spirit a revival in our city here in Los Angeles. And particularly among our people. That those who have not heard of you as they ought might hear of you and have their hearts opened. Might you do this, Lord, for your glory, for our joy, and that many would see you and be glad. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.